Amen. The, the message I want to bring today is, uh, it's, it's nothing new. It kind of runs along the same lines that you're used to hearing from me. Um, I don't know why I tend to gravitate towards these types of sermons. I think I do because I see such a tremendous lack in my life from these things. That's, that's basically the only way that I can put it. I don't know. It's kind of like wanting to be this person, but never really getting there, you could say. Um, so it's, it is a little disjointed, so I, I just want to ask your forgiveness beforehand for that, that if the thoughts wander around a little bit, you'll have to forgive me for that. Um, I've, I've been struggling the last month with a number of things, so it's entitled, I entitled it basically the love of many growing cold. And uh, a lot of the stories you've probably already heard, I find that when I try to come up with new applications, I tend to go back to these old stories because I find them just very fitting or for what I'm trying to bring out. So before we begin, let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, we again bow before you. We just want to ask for your presence again in our midst. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us as we sit and meditate on your word, Father, and we just want to pray your presence to be here and um, that you will each help us to search our own hearts to see where we're at and how we are how our relationship is with you, Lord. We pray that our hearts may be soft and pliable, Father, and that uh, we may be desiring, Father, to know you in a deeper way, to know more of you and your ways and your will for our life, and to not give, give way, Father, to the enemy who is out to distract us, to destroy us and to deceive us in any way that he can and by placing things before us that take our time and attention away from you. Help us, Father, also to be careful that we don't major on minors. Like we do a lot of times, we spend all our energy and effort on things that have little eternal value. And we just pray that you will protect us from that and keep us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So basically, this message is kind of a reminder to be watchful against allowing our hearts to grow cold or distracted with all that is around us. We have to keep reminding ourselves that we're in a war, a war for our souls. The enemy is constantly roaming around, seeking someone whom he may devour, as the Bible teaches us. And the enemy comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And we need to remember that the enemy does not play fair. He will always try to take us deeper into lukewarmness and sin, deeper than we want to go, or he tries to keep us longer than we intended to stay. And as much as I don't like it, I found that my spiritual life tends to run in cycles. There are times of what I feel are oppressing in, and a desiring to know God in a deeper way, and in a deeper reality. Unfortunately, the majority of the time it seems like I'm forced into those seasons when I feel overwhelmed and I'm going through either trials or physical illnesses or issues of those nature. But then there are the times when I tend to give in to the overindulgences of hobbies, entertainment, and idleness. These are times of no external or internal pressures, times when it seems like everything is going well, times when we are not obligated to bring a word, 
or to give of ourselves spiritually. And no one really is depending on us for something. I found that these are usually not the best times for our spiritual well-being. And overindulgence of these things just gives rise to a greater appetite and causes the heart, the searching, basically, after Christ. It causes us to become fat and lazy. There's really no other way to say it. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 15, it says, But Jeshurun, Israel, became fat and kicked at God. You became fat, thick, sleek, and obstinate. Then he abandoned God who had made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. Now I know that we don't necessarily abandon God and scorn the rock of our salvation, but it is kind of the same thing. The soul of man becomes accustomed to ease, and soon you look up and you're overweight and sick. It's a gradual process of just pushing things off till tomorrow and telling ourselves that we will do better tomorrow. So growing cold. In 2 Timothy verse 3 is our text from 1 to 5. It says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. In Matthew 24, 12 to 13, it says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We have to be ready for this. And it is a hard thing to read. It's hard to read through this a list like this, because a lot of times we can see ourselves in at least a few of these things. And I find it's a good practice to sometimes go through these lists and just see where we're at with these things, to check our own hearts. So I want to begin with a story of basically growing cold, I've had it before. It goes like this. After a speech, pro-life activist Penny Lee was approached by an old man. Weeping, the old man told her that he had lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. The entire town had heard the stories of what was happening to the Jews. But like most people... Today in the country, they tried to distance themselves from the reality of what was really taking place. What could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind their small church. One Sunday morning, they became disturbed when they noticed cries for help coming from the train as it passed by. They grimly realized that the train was carrying Jews. He then said, the old man then said, it was so terribly disturbing. We could do nothing to help those, these poor, miserable people, yet their screams tormented us. We knew exactly at what time that whistle would blow, and we decided the only way to keep from being so disturbed by the cries was to start singing our hymns. By the time that train came rumbling past the churchyard, we were singing at the top of our voices. If some of the screams reached our ears, we'd just sing a little louder until we could hear them no more. Years have passed and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. I can still hear them crying out for help. God forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians, yet did nothing to intervene. It's a very sobering story. 
And it kind of, it reminds me a lot of God trying to get our attention, even in our own journeys. He's like train whistle and the people that are, that are basically screaming. And, uh, but it seems like there's always something that's holding us back. And as you think about this story, what do you think the root problem is? What do you think is the actual problem? And I think he basically, he said it. A root problem is that people did not want to give up what it would take to help. The sacrifice would have been too great. And that's kind of how it is a lot of times in our lives. We don't really want to give up what, or want to give what it's going to take. And you can plug in many different scenarios, many different things in this. To get to where we desire to be, is often we simply don't want to give up the things that we have to get there. The Bible has forewarned us with the knowledge that the last days will be difficult, dangerous, and violent. And with each passing day, it seems that a new story emerges in the news that reminds us of just how unsafe and unstable our world is at this time. In fact, we seem to have heard such stories so often that the shock value of some of these happenings hardly seem to affect us and are mostly forgotten after a few days. The word inequity means lawlessness, rebellion, and wickedness. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. The implication is that the more the world runs wild, the greater the risk we face of becoming hard and calloused. When we hear of crime, conflicts, and violence, we have a tendency to close up and go into self-preservation mode, often wondering what we can do to protect ourselves and our families. Through all the violence that we see in this day and age, we can become distrustful of people in general. And I'm not standing here and saying that there's nothing wrong with being cautious and protective. But we can easily become afraid and distrustful to the point where it borders on becoming so paranoid that we no longer open the door to those who are strangers. We start looking the other way and we start basically coming up with the worst case scenarios of what could happen. And it's, it does tend to go that way, especially if we've had bad experiences in the past. And uh, it is what it is. But the lines are slowly being blurred between coldness, silence, and indifference, and between guarded and uncaring. A.W. Tozer wrote, Keep me, Lord, from ever hardening down into the state of being just another average Christian. So a lot of times in growing cold, it simply comes from the forming of selfish instincts. And closing our world to only basically focusing on ourselves. I feel this is a big part of my life. I, I just always tend to come to this area of selfishness. Because I feel it's, it is so easy to just focus on self. And to just focus on whenever we're faced with a situation to make sure we come out on the right side 
And men shall be lovers of their own selves. I have a, a little interest or humorous story. It says here, Winston Churchill took a cruise. Late in, the life, late in life, Winston Churchill took a cruise on an Italian ship. A journalist encountered the former prime minister to ask him why he chose to travel on an Italian line when the stately Queen's line under the British flag was available. Churchill gave the question his consideration and then gravely replied, There are three things I like about Italian ships. First, their cuisine, which is unsurpassed. Second, their service, which is quite superb. And then Sir Winston added, and then there is none of this nonsense about women and children first. So, yeah, thinking of him, it probably would, this is probably true. But anyway, it is indeed selfish. Um, The moment a child is born... A self-love is firmly enthroned in their hearts. You hear it a lot of times when you watch children at play. It's always my toy or my ball or whatever it is. We've all seen it. If that child is not taught to share, take turns, or think of others, they tend to grow into adults who tend to live for self. Such hearts become the breeding ground for aggressive, competitive spirits consumed with taking rather than giving. The mentality of pursuing pleasure, success, and material treasures at all costs has made idols of things and devalued human life. On the one end of life, the vast majority of abortions are being performed out of selfish convenience. And then on the other end of life, the feeble and old are being put into old folks' homes so as to not inconvenience the careers and pursuits of their children. Ultimately, to live at the expense or exclusion of others can only produce a miserable existence. Charles H. Parkhurst wrote, The man who lives by himself and for himself is apt to be corrupted by the company he keeps. A man cannot help but grow cold when he has cut himself off from everything and everyone that could have provided warmth and compassion. And we all know selfishness has many phases, and it can infiltrate every part of our lives, our homes, our families, our marriages, our work, whatever it is. And I found it a good practice to... A lot of times at the end of the day, when you're alone somewhere, to go back in your mind and analyze your day, to think of your motives, of why you did or said what you did, and from what spirit it came from. A lot of times the motive comes out to be a selfish one, one where we gain something for ourselves, where we wanted praise or recognition or where we came out on the winning end of the bargain. It's a good practice to ask Christ to help us recognize and change the outcome the next time we face similar situations. In Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let love be genuine. That's in verse 9. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So, basically coming back to relationships again and in seeing selfishness in relationships I have another story which I've read probably numerous times 
But I've again, like I said, I found that this this story is is uh, it's a good illustration of how life can be when we're when we miss the important things. And uh, goes like this: touch is a most humanizing quality. Rene. Arpad Spitz was an Austrian-American psychoanalyst who compiled some amazing evidence pertaining to the absence of touch and sensory deprivation. His studies remind us of the many instances of sensory deprivation used on purpose to break prisoners and make them lose their identity and human pride. In a South American orphanage, Spitz observed and recorded what happened to 97 children who were deprived of emotional and physical contact with others. Because of a lack of funds, there was not enough staff to adequately care for these children, ages three months to three years old. Nurses changed diapers and fed and bathed children, the children. But there was little time to hold, touch, and talk to them as a parent would. After three months, many of them showed signs of abnor- abnormalities. Besides a loss of appetite and being unable to sleep well, many of the children lay with a vacant expression in their eyes. After five months, serious deterioration set in. They lay whimpering with troubled and twisted faces. Often when a nurse, doctor or nurse would pick up an infant, it would scream in terror. Twenty-seven, almost one-third of the children died the first year, but not from a lack of food or health care. They died of a lack of touch and emotional nurture. Because of this, seven more died the second year. Only 21 of the 97 survived, most suffering from serious psychological damage. It's a very sad story, but it is a very important one. Babies were taken care of physically. It says that the nurses changed diapers and fed and bathed them, but that's all they had time for. But they never cared for anything other than that. The emotional needs. They became abnormal even to the point of death. Does this not teach us that this can still be happening even to adults, if we're not careful. Do people still die inside? Do people feel that their deepest thoughts and feelings can never be shared with anyone because of a lack of trust? Are we sometimes guilty of creating a performance-based system? These babies obviously needed more than just having their physical needs met. They need to feel someone's loving touch. People in general desire to be loved and affirmed by others. And uh, I recently put a short clip on my status, which I don't do a whole lot, of, well, of giving Fabi a bottle. And I, it kind of, she kind of always reacts the same way when I ask her if she wants a bottle and go to bed. She starts this gleeful laugh till she gets it. But one thing that always strikes me about children like that, and maybe you've seen it too, when I lay her in her crib and put a blanket over her, the look on her face is priceless. It's a look of pure contentment. And at times I've even taken a picture of it. It's a look of a child who feels loved, accepted, safe and protected. And those feelings of wanting to be loved, accepted and protected do not go away as you grow up. 
We just get better at hiding it. We still want to feel that. But sometimes people create this hard shell. It's a tough exterior that's hardened by years of use and abuse. And nobody can penetrate it because they've been hurt too much. But I've read enough stories and listened to enough testimonies that show that the love of Christ can penetrate even seemingly the most invincible shell that we can construct if we just allow him to do it. I know when Rachel passed, I went through a really challenging time. In times when you're hurting and in pain, we tend to want to be alone. But a lot of times, isolating ourselves from others isn't the best option. It tends to make it worse. I remember I lost my appetite. Basically, had to force myself to eat. And uh, to the point where I felt there's something physically wrong with me. And things were happening that I was, I was uh, just worried about. And yes, I did call the brothers over for a time of prayer and just talking. But I also ended up making an appointment and going to the doctor because I was worried. And uh, as I was sitting there, I just, and sharing what was going on and uh, about everything, it's good to hear someone say, you know, what you're going through is, is normal. I mean, it's, uh, it's okay. You'll be, you'll be okay. And you're going to come out on the other side of this. And I know brothers have shared this with me before. But it's, it's so good to hear it. To hear that, you know, there's someone who listens. And did, I mean, they didn't do a whole lot of talking. It's simply having someone there who listens as you explain what's going on. And uh, that's sometimes all it needs for you to take, the, to take a corner is just to hear that, to hear someone say, hey, it's going to be okay. Um, you'll be fine. And it's, it's normal for, for you to go through something like that to have these, these fears and these issues. And uh, it's, I also place this in my sermon here, that it's something that's hard for us to discuss and something that's even harder to deal with when it happens. It's the, the, uh, the topic of suicide, the ending of one's own life, Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. It is the fourth leading cause of death for adolescents ages 15 to 19 globally. In 2019, there were an estimated 3.5 million people who planned a suicide. 1.4 million, people, 1.4 million suicide attempts and 47,511 deaths by suicide. Whenever I hear of someone that takes their own life, I wonder that if this person would have been a friend or a brother or sister of mine, would I have sensed that something was going on? Would I have noticed this person struggling? I've never been at the point where I've wanted to end my life or even struggled with thoughts like that. But I do understand the feelings of 
depression, hopelessness, pain and loneliness. I can understand the thoughts of saying people would be better off if I would not be around. I mess up all the time anyway. I can never please people. I can never do anything right. And all I do is make people angry or miserable. You know what? I've had a person tell me this. Where this person said, I think people would be better off if I would not be around. And it didn't mean leaving, like going somewhere else. And I know each situation is different. I'm, I'm not saying that we blame ourselves every time something happens with people. No. But I'm just wondering if we're in tune enough, if we are close enough to Christ that we actually would be his hands and his feet. The majority of the time when we see a person acting out in rebellion or other ways, I feel that what you see is just on the surface. It's not the real problem. The root problems are always hidden and deeper. And maybe a person has been repeatedly hurt and abused to the point where they feel that it's not worth it anymore. Why try at all? I never measure up to people's expectations anyway. And when I do open up and make and when they do open up and make themselves vulnerable and share their issues and problems, they are discussed and shared with others. A person like that can easily say, Never again will I ever allow myself to be hurt or betrayed like that. At the end of the day, people that are going through these difficult valleys and trials want exactly what you and I want. They want to have a listening ear and have someone tell them that it's going to be okay. They want to feel loved, appreciated, and valued, protected, and accepted. And like everything in life, if a person has spent a lot of time putting on protection. It doesn't come off overnight. The trust is not replaced overnight. It takes a while. So many people in those times of, of deep wrestling, right before they were going to end their life, had someone reach out to them that caused them to change their mind, all because it came from a person who genuinely cared and all they wanted to hear was that, that someone cares. And I, I know we've all heard those stories of, of people that were ready to end their life and the phone rang and someone calling on them to check up on them and just see how they're doing and just talk to them. So each situation is different. People are different. They react differently. And we do not know what is going on in each heart. I understand this. And we, are not, we shouldn't blame ourselves. We shouldn't blame ourselves. But I do know the challenge is that, again, are we spiritually awake enough so that God would be able to use us in times like that? Or are we too distracted with other things? So, coming back to selfishness. A lot of times I found in, in my own life that When you, when you look at your own life and, and your, uh, the selfish nature, it's one of the only ways to overcome selfishness and finding a purpose in life is to serve others. 
I have a short story here. It says, the great violinist Niccolo Paganini willed his marvelous violin to Genoa, the city of his birth, but only on condition that the instrument never be played upon. So in his will, he basically gave his violin to uh, Genoa, the city of his birth. But the condition was no one is ever to play upon it again. It was, an unfor- it was an unfortunate condition, for it is a peculiarity of wood that as long as it is used and handled, it shows little wear. But as soon as it is discarded, it begins to decay. The exquisite melotoned violin has become worm-eaten in its beautiful case, valueless except as a relic. The moldering instrument is a reminder that a life withdrawn from all service to others loses its meaning. So on the flip side, we have to also remember that when we give of ourselves to others, that it is also not always an easy road. There seems to always be some sacrifices and even hiccups. No matter whom we engage in life, involvement calls for investment, and investment implies risk. Wherever love exists, there is always the vulnerability of being hurt. We have all been used, conned, manipulated, and taken advantage of. Such experiences in life can leave us bitter and cynical. It then seems natural to begin seeking means to insulate ourselves from such hurt and disappointment. However, the greater the attempt to keep our hearts unbroken, the more we are becoming unbreakable. Ralph Berry wrote this recently. There is no way to be the hands and feet of Jesus without the possibility of being trampled underfoot. To remove the possibility of a broken heart or broken bones is to rob the master of your total dedication to him. We must once more become broken bread to such a degree that even our enemies can eat. And always, as always, we have the example of our creator, of how he handled these things. These times when people were basically opposed to him or just um, mocking him, making fun of him. And we have to remember that he was the creator of the universe, a man who knew everything. He knew all the right answers. He could see into men's hearts and see their motives. He knew their thoughts. He knew their faults and failures and the words to say to cause them to become ashamed. But a lot of times he chose silence. He chose rather to turn, to turn basically, and walk in, up into the mountains, you could say. He was not afraid to speak. Don't get me wrong. He was not afraid to speak. But a lot of times what he chose, especially there at the crucifixion, is maybe not what we would choose. Now we know that we will face ridicule and injury. We expect it because Christ told us not to be surprised if the world hates us and spitefully uses us and abuses us. We understand that and we expect it from unbelievers. But the question is, what if it comes from our very own brothers and sisters, people who confess that they are Christians? What then? That makes it even more difficult. And it makes it even more difficult, or there's a greater tendency to fall into bitterness. Because we tend to feel, well, if that's Christianity, then I don't want anything to do with it. So I know what my tendencies are. A lot of times it's simply to clam up to not say anything and just avoid that person. But I've come to understand very clearly that that is not the right way. So, kind of in closing, forsaking of spiritual intimacy. 
and growing cold, forsaking of spiritual in, uh, intimacy. In Revelations chapter 2, Jesus said that the church in Ephesus was a working, disciplined, and persevering church. However, in spite of their activity, he said, Thou hast left thy first love. It was not that they stopped loving the Lord, but rather that they did not love him as they once did. The bitterness had produced barrenness, and, their, and the fire was gone. The moment our service becomes hollow and habitual is the moment we risk it becoming hypocritical. Now, I again will not sit, stand here and say that there are not seasons of times when we kind of go through a desert. Times of dryness, you could say. But a brother recently shared with me that we have to be careful. There is such a thing as weariness. There is indeed weariness from being in, in a war, from, from continuously trying to guard ourselves and to we're we're tired of the conflict, basically. And we, we just want it to we just want to, to stop. But he said this, there's a difference in resting in the war and in leaving the war. We have to make sure it's okay to rest in the war. But if you leave the war, that's where the danger is. And it, it hit me, and it hit me pretty, pretty hard because it's a good question to ask ourselves. And I know it sounds silly to rest in a war. I think both are not a good option, but if we do, at least we are still, we are still kind of there, even though we're, we are at a, you could say, a greater um, risk of being injured. One man said it this way, after Moses received the Ten Commandments, he had to wear a veil because of the glow of God's glory on his countenance. Over time, the glow would fade from his appearance. We seem to live in a world of veiled Christianity today, perhaps, but perhaps the veil is only to cover the shameful fact that the glow is gone. When a man has been with the Lord, he cannot hide it nor deny it. It's, it's again a challenge. It's, it's definitely a challenge. Perhaps the veil is only to cover the shameful fact that the glow is gone. Spiritual intimacy. William Law states that you are as spiritual as you want to be. There's these, uh, are these verses that say, Knock, seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened unto you. And what's the other one? Ask, and it will be given you. And normally, it's not, again, an instantaneous thing. It is something that we do on a continual basis. And uh, a lot of times, the coldness... Even in my own life, it comes, it, uh, I kind of, it boils down to this, Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or mammon. And I, it's kind of boiled down to this for me. I found that, again, the dog you feed the most, and I'm not in any way, it's just that if you would have two dogs, the dog you feed the most is the one that wins the battle, I guess, depending on how much you feed it. But generally, that's how it is. I don't think we can look at it any other way. And so the challenges I want to leave is, do I still hunger after the word of God? To know God in a more intimate way. And don't get me wrong, I don't think it will be the same all the time. I think that it does wax and wane a bit throughout our journey. 
and through the different seasons of life. But it should grow into something that becomes part of who we are because it's of such importance to us, to a believer. And if it's not there, I, I, I still remember what Trevor said. There's one Bible school. He says, if it's not there, what do you do? He basically said, you, you go and you, you kneel down and you say, Lord, the hunger for your word is gone. Can you help me to restore that? And it's, it's a starting point. At least we're admitting, we're not denying that it's not there. We are, first of all, admitting that it is gone, that it's not there. And then you come to your father, who, is, who can uh, basically do all things, and you admit it, and you, you pray according to those, along those lines. Does spending time in fellowship with other believers talking about the things of God still satisfy me? Or can I think of something else I'd rather be doing? Again, I find that this is a, it is, it is kind of a gauge for me. When you sit in a group of people and the subject, uh, spiritual subjects come up, what is our reaction to that? Would we rather talk, talk about something else? And yes, sometimes I do want to talk about something else because it's a lot of times it's simply arguing over things that don't matter. But... It is something that I feel is important. It kind of is, a, to me, a gauge of the spiritual um, level of the church, you could say. That if these things peter out or stop, it's, it's not usually a good sign. And do I pray out of duty? Or is it a time where I can pour out my true feelings and heart before a father who loves and cares for me? And I'm not against praying because it's a duty, but I think you all know what I mean. And no, it's not always easy to pray. A brother just shared this with me also. He said, sometimes... I just go into my room and to my closet and I just kneel down and I don't say anything. Because I know God knows exactly what my, where my heart is and what my deepest struggles are. And I, I just sit there. And I felt that, that it was, it's good. It's okay to do that. <clears throat> but... I believe these practices are like everything else in life. The amount of time and effort we invest into it will be the, in exact proportion of the quality we will receive in return. Anything we do sporadically and haphazardly with little effort will yield exactly what you have put into it. You can take your job, your marriage, the people around you, your children, whatever it is, even your pets. Anything we do sporadically and haphazardly with little effort will yield exactly what you have put into it. You can only withdraw what you have deposited. But sometimes it seems like our, our thrill levels are too high. We've been feeding on the wrong stuff for too long. The... You could say the, the simple things of life no longer thrill us. And when my children were around two or three years old, my wife and I would watch them. I'd place a book on the floor and step on it and jump off with much delight and laughter. And Rachel would say, their thrill level isn't very high right now, is it? And... Uh, I don't think they'd get the same thrill out of jumping off the, uh, of, a, of a book again. But it's, we should not be surprised when we notice our spiritual appetite decreasing if we continuously satisfy our hunger with other things. In closing, 
F.B. Meyer wrote, I believe that there is one thing which pierces the master's heart, but unutterable grief is not the world's iniquity, but the church's indifference. While the darkness may cast shadows and raise fears, it is not the night that brings death, but rather the chilling frost. It is not the night that brings death, but rather the chilling frost. Frost itself is not a rapid process. It is a gradual cooling process that causes the water in plant cells to freeze, damaging the cell walls. Frost-damaged plants are easy to spot. Their growth becomes limp, where their leaves become limp, blackened, and distorted. So, it's springtime, and hopefully the frost has not damaged us too much. Or we are not allowing the frost to damage us too much. Hopefully the sun will come out and uh, basically melt that frost away. I want to leave you with Colossians 3. 1 to 4, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also, and you also will appear with him in glory. So, amen. Again, I'm not where I need to be. I understand that and I admit that. And I need to hear, I need to hear this, just like anybody here, probably more so. So God bless you and thank you.